Hi, and welcome to this installment of our New Books in the Arts and Sciences panel podcast, sponsored by the Maison Francaise at Columbia University, Columbia's Office of the Divisional Deans in the Faculty of Arts and Sciences, and the Society of Fellows and Heyman Center for the Humanities. I'm Anne Levitsky. Today's podcast celebrates Isidore and Seville Sulzbacher Professor of Law, Professor of Political Science, Executive Director of the Eric H. Holder Initiative for Civil and Political Rights, and Founding Director of the Columbia Center for Contemporary Critical Thought Bernard Harcourt's book, The Counter-Revolution, How Our Government Went to War Against Its Own Citizens. Bernard appeared on the panel alongside Sheila Ben-Habib, Eugene Meyer, Professor of Political Science and Professor of Philosophy at Yale, and Uday Singh Mehta, Professor of Political Science at the CUNY Graduate Center. First, we'll hear excerpts from the comments Sheila and Uday made about Bernard's book at the panel, and then I'll bring you Bernard's response from the panel. First, Sheila Ben-Habib commented on the way in which the book examines the coming together of militarization practices in today's government. So Bernard's book is about the coming together of these uh, practices after 9-1-1 of um, uh, militarization of the uh, police, extensive use of surveillance um, uh, against uh, American citizens, the use of drone weapons, and I, I think the book reminds me of a phrase of Hannah Arendt at the end of the Vietnam War, you know, during the last phases of the Vietnam War, when the Nixon and Watergate scandal had erupted. She wrote a very famous article in the New York Review of Books called "When the Chickens Come Home to Roost." There is always a relationship between imperialist wars abroad and domestic repression at home. And it seems to me as if this book may have pulled together those connections. So why don't I turn it over to you now, today? Next, Uday Singh Mehta discussed the claims Bernard's book makes, in addition to the possible effects counterinsurgency may have on our definition of democracy. <clears throat> um, I'm very happy to be here. And I really do feel very honored uh, uh, to be in this position to talk about Bernard's book um, with him and with Chela. Um, I honestly uh, can't think of a book, uh, at least not recently, that has the three things, three attributes which I think Bernard's book has. First, it's a very good book in the sense that it's enormously well-researched, it's very clear, um, he makes his point with a certain kind of verb. In some kind of obvious sense, it's a very good book. Um, uh, the other thing is that I, it's an enormously important book. Uh, uh, because I think if you take what he's saying seriously, um, you, you have to, in some sense, wonder uh, uh, what is the status of our democracy? And also, you have to wonder, well, uh, if he's right, uh, exactly uh, what does it mean to fight for democracy? Or, or to treasure democracy. And I, 
say a little bit more about that. The third thing is that it's an enormously disturbing book. It is really very hard to read this book uh, and not feel that, you know, uh, one is in some utter dystopia. Uh, and yet, that's not how we usually go about things. You know, we don't think of ourselves ordinarily as uh, uh, living in a kind of uh, very, very troubling dystopia. And yet, to take Bernard seriously is to have to confront that. And for the last week that I've been reading this book, you know, I, I've constantly had this thought. This, this is a very troubling, uh, the story he tells is, is very troubling. Uh, I, I know Bernard is going to say a few things. Um, uh, he's going to tell you more about the book. I mean, but let me just say this. Um, the central claim, at least one of the central claims, the claim that underlies or courses through the entire book, is this claim that counterinsurgency, uh, what, right at the end of the book he calls also links with counter-revolution, uh, has these three features. Uh, one is uh, to gather information. Uh, to get all information uh, about everyone, literally everyone, uh, not just citizens. Okay? You know, there is, this is part of what I want to come back to, there is literally no boundary. The second claim is uh, to isolate the kind of insurgent or the troubling minority. Um, and the third claim is uh, to win the favor of or pacify the majority. Um, and all three of these features, Bernard uh, documents, uh, come into the modern political lexicon, both of thinking and of practice, from uh, anti-colonial struggles in Indochina, in, in, uh, uh, in Vietnam, and in Algeria. Uh, so as Shella was saying, there is this sense that something that was designed uh, to contend with uh, uh, anti-colonial struggles has now become a central aspect of how we are governed. As he points out, it is kind of ironic that the thing that is that has become central to our mode of governance is the thing that failed in all these contexts. <coughs> so it failed in achieving what it was designed to achieve in these anti-colonial uh, contexts. So one of the things that Bernard keeps pointing to is how um, uh, various boundaries between the military and the civilian, the foreign and the domestic, law and uh, whatever non-law is, that counterinsurgency is predicated in some sense 
on evacuating these distinctions. That's, that's its logic. Okay? So that uh, the way it deals with the domestic is no different than it deals with the foreign. Now, one way, uh, since all three of us are political theorists, and uh, this is just the way I tend to think, um, one way one might contextualize, contextualize this is the idea of liberalism. Uh, historically, uh, has been predicated on boundaries. As Michael Wilson many, many years ago in a famous essay said, liberalism was based on there being distinct spheres. So that the military was separate from the police. Uh, the private was separate from the public. Uh, and one could go on. So part of what Bernard is, I think, pointing to, uh, and, and, and it's from that idea that one develops a theory of democracy. It's based, in some sense, on the existence of these boundaries. So what Bernard is pointing to, I think, can be thought of, and this is why I say it's a very, very disturbing book and a very troubling book, um, uh, it's that the evacuation of these boundaries, uh, I think, in some sense, makes us wonder, or makes at least me think, about what's the tenability uh, of the very distinctions on which uh, liberal democracy is based. Because I think, if I understand Bernard correctly, that you know, counterinsurgency is this process by which these important boundaries of authority are being evacuated. Now, uh, we can talk about this more. Uh, now, there is a Right at the end of the book, in the last chapter of the book, um, after Bernard has documented a series of enormously troubling things about the, the relationship between the military and the police, about uh, how uh, one of the interesting uh, theoretical claims that Bernard makes is that he contends that unlike people like Carl Schmidt and Rambe and many others uh, who want to think of uh, situations as being defined by their exceptional nature, Bernard wants to say that the story he's telling uh, is characterized by the fact that it is utterly, it is not predicated on this being exceptional. But, um, uh, as he says, uh, 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 sorry, uh, he says it's it's unexceptional and it's wholly coherent. So he doesn't rely on the, what the, the things he's pointing out as being exceptional. They're not exceptional in his reading. Uh, 
So one question I have for Bernard is uh, if the story you're telling uh, is right, if indeed uh, this form of counterinsurgency has become wholly coherent and is deeply good, it's deeply anchored. What exactly are we doing when we try and defend democracy? Because in a sense, the story you have told is one in which the foundation now is of counterinsurgency. In some sense, to the story you are telling or you've told, it would make no difference, or it would make minimal difference, if Trump had not been elected and Hillary Clinton had been elected. Because the things that are doing the work in your account would still be there, and in your account, you know, somebody like Barack Obama comes off pretty damn badly, I mean, especially in the, uh, the increase in, in drones, etc. So, so one question I have is, you know, what's the status of, what, what is it one is doing when one tries to defend democracy? Uh, your book uh, and could be read not just pessimistically in the sense that it tells a story that is very disturbing, but it could also be read pessimistically in the sense that it doesn't give us anywhere to go. It just says resist. But one might say, why should I resist if you are right? Because if you are right, it's not clear that this form of Information gathering, this form of uh, this this mode of governance that you have outlined—it's not, it's not entirely clear that, that one overcomes that by, as it were, heroic acts of courage. Even if they're not just individual, and you you point to groups like Black Lives Matter, etc., where where the resistance is not just individual. But one might say, well, you know, if you're right, not quite clear what all this adds up to. Anyways, I'll stop there. Finally, Bernard gave an overview of his book and situated it against the current political climate and then responded to Shayla and Uday. Thank you, Uday, and thank you, Shayla. I'm, I'm so uh, pleased to be uh, comforted, particularly in these moments, by <coughs> such dear friends and uh, deep thinkers. Um, and uh, I thank you all for uh, coming out this evening and uh, spending some time thinking about the counter-revolution. And I also want to thank my editor, Brian Disberg, uh, from Basic Book, who's here, and who uh, really helped me make this uh, better than it was in its manuscript form. So um, we'll see how good it is. You'll decide for yourselves, but uh, it's a notch up from where it was sent in. Um, so you've raised a number of important issues that I really want to address today. And what I thought I would do, perhaps, is first kind of situate uh, the book in order to then address 
the, the, the themes that you've raised and that are extremely important uh, properly. Um, and so as you've heard uh, from both Shiva and Uday, um, the book is trying to understand a, a, the, the coherence of different practices that we are kind of uh, marked by today, um, and that we tend to think of as being just different excesses that we see around us. Um, and in part, some of it, I mean, I remember we were on a panel once, Sheila, here, right here at this stage, and we were talking about the punitive society, and you mentioned drones. And I remember being struck, as you, as you mentioned, it's like, drones, I keep on, I keep on not thinking enough about drones and drone warfare and the civilians. And, and in part it was because all of these disparate phenomena that hit us, um, hit us so sharply that we just have a hard time putting them all together, right? I mean, there's, there's Guantanamo, and there was the, the torture of raid, and, and then you think about, uh, you know, militarized policing, and then, and, then, and then you remember that there are these drone strikes that are going on and on, and, and they, they, they seem disparate, and it was thinking through their disparateness that I started to see what there was that was coherent in all of these different phenomena. And what it was, was that they were all marked by a logic of counterinsurgency theory. And so the NSA uh, surveillance programs, uh, which I had written about a lot in the in, uh, Exposed, in my previous book, um, so they seemed very different from drone strikes, but in fact, it, it, all of a sudden it starts to make a lot of sense when you think about the theory of counterinsurgency, which is to gather all information about everyone, as we was discussing, <coughs> gather all of the information about everyone, to parse out a small insurgent minority, to target it, in other words, to eliminate it, as you would eliminate the Viet Cong, in order to then also win the hearts and minds of the passive masses. And also all these strategies start to make sense as strategies of counterinsurgency. So NSA surveillance on the American people is to get everybody's information so that we can know, we can, we can know from your, from your tweets, from your posts, from your texts, from your messages, from who you're talking to, from who you're dialing, from how many hops it is to somebody else whether you're likely to be in that dangerous category or not. And then once we have that dangerous category, a fictitious category, I argue a little bit, we can then try to eliminate it through something like the Muslim ban, or by getting deporting uh, Mexican-Americans, or by finding, by creating a fictitious insurgency and then trying to eliminate it. And, in the pro and, and while simultaneously trying to pacify the masses, and that's us and many, many, and many, although many of us are targeted in different ways, pacify the masses um, through, and I, and, and I would say right now, I would say through a kind of government, a reality TV 
form of governing that has a different TV episode every day, right? So we are so consumed every day by the next TV episode that actually we are no longer able to think about anything, right? We, we, don't, even, we don't even discuss drone strikes anymore, even though the rates of drone strikes have gone up. Um, we don't, dis, you know, we don't talk about Guantanamo, even though the folks are still at Guantanamo detained in, indefinitely. And we, we can't even get to those issues anymore because we're so consumed by the daily reality TV precedence that we have. Right? Um, that is this form of distraction. Now, um, and so and so, what the what the book really tried to do is to show that what we we had done was that we had started to, we've started to govern in this country through these techniques of counterinsurgency which were developed uh, in the 1960s uh, in Algeria, Indochina, Malaya, Vietnam, etc. And that we've brought them home to roost as you were suggesting, Sheila, and as Anna Arendt had suggested, the chickens have come home to roost. And that we're using those techniques now on ourselves. Right? The government is using those techniques on its own citizens. <laughs> And that's with the militarized policing, or that's with the NYPD surveillance of mosques and, uh, and, 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 and Muslim businesses. Um, that's with the increased ICE deportations, etc., arrests and deportations. Now, okay, so that's the that's the arc. Now, you're entirely right, Uday, that um, the book was actually kind of conceptualized and written, and these and these ties. Uh, that I, and the coherence, um, I actually uh, were, were written with an expectation that we would be under a Clinton administration right now, right? Um, and actually, there was more, there was more uh, ability to reflect, I feel, about these issues under an Obama administration because it's almost as if today we don't even have the space or the time or the bandwidth to reflect on these issues and how they tie together. And the argument is not, indeed, that things changed with Trump, but that there was a progression from after 9-11, right? A progression from after 9-11, whereby we gradually began to first see a dominance of counterinsurgency theory at the international level in terms of our war capacity. So in Iran and Iraq, where counterinsurgency became the mode of warfare, um, which we saw with General Petraeus and uh, the Counterinsurgency Manual, 2006, which was a fascinating document. I spent a lot of time discussing it in this book because um, the, the, the Petraeus Manual, the counterinsurgency manual. He was, he's, a, he's a very um, he's a very thoughtful and um, he's a theoretician, really, uh, of warfare, uh, Petraeus. And his greatest and favorite theorists of warfare were, in fact, the counterinsurgency theorists in in France and in England, uh, David Galula, um, Thompson in England. And so that's where he got most of his theories about counterinsurgency. Um, and so that is what ties this all together back to the 1960s. Um, but we first see this movement abroad in terms of the way in which we fight wars uh, through counterinsurgency. 
to a, move, a, a kind of colonization of our foreign policy uh, in the night in the in the aughts, right? Such that our foreign policy is governed by drone strikes in outside of war zones. Right? Uh, so there's an expansion of drone strikes outside of war zones. The expansion of uh, NSA surveillance across the globe, um, and um, and uh, the use of uh, the use of uh, digital content to uh, de-radicalize uh, across the across the globe. So you see all of that kind of becoming part of uh, international uh, or foreign affairs. And then finally, what I argue is that you start to see it come home to roost uh, with uh, the militarization of the police uh, as a result of all of the excess military property that comes back um, to U.S. soil through Department of Defense programs. Um, with militarized response against protesters. Um, the first use of a drone strike on an American citizen uh, abroad, right? So basically targeting for execution an American citizen abroad right? who hasn't been tried, uh, which happens uh, under the Obama administration. Um, and then uh, the gradual internalization of drone technology, so that in Dallas, Texas, for instance, all of a sudden we're using a, a robot bomb to kill a suspect in a criminal context, right? which of course, that's not what you do in law enforcement, in domestic law enforcement. You don't kill suspects, you try to disable suspects, but you don't use drones to kill a suspect because the suspect might be insane or might not be guilty because of some other reason. And so you, just, you don't kill them, you disable them. But all of a sudden, it's kind of like pivoted. And then to the use of all of these technologies with um, kind of SWAT teams that are essentially doing the kind of performing the kind of work that they would do in Afghanistan, uh, but in our own homes. So that's the arc of the arc of the argument, and it was written with this uh, with this notion that what we've seen is a gradual turn to counterinsurgency uh, launchers uh, since 2011, uh, since 9/11, uh, since 9/11. Um, now, Trump becomes important here because, in in effect, his election kind of seals this logic. Or, or puts the imprimatur of the American people on this logic. And of course, it wasn't a popular vote, but it was a sufficiently popular vote that he was elected by the Electoral College. But he kind of, um, he embodied and he personified every aspect of this uh, at its most uh, uh, aggressive and most offensive, right? Um, the creation, for instance, of an internal enemy of Muslims as an internal enemy. Basically. I mean, he he instantiated that. Uh, the idea that we would that we would have a Muslim ban to keep Muslims out. The idea that that I, you know, on the campaign trail, right, he indicated that we should have uh, special ID cards for Muslims in this country. I mean. He, he, he supported the NYPD surveillance uh, that had happened right after 9-11. And I describe it in this book, when you, when you reread what, what the NYPD did, for instance, this is mind-boggling. You know, I mean, the NYPD sending undercover police agents 
to into not into mosques, right? Without any suspicion, uh, into mosques, even to accompany um, white river rafting uh, students from uh, from CUNY. Right? So so it really it, we really we it, we, had seen, and, and we had seen this and 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 Trump was playing on all of these tropes defending the NYPD, saying we should need more of that, going after Mexican-Americans, going after Hispanics, um, et cetera, creating internal enemies in this way. And so, and so the fact that he was then elected by the Electoral College, I think, in some sense, put the imprimatur of, uh, of the American people on this way of governing, this new way of governing. Um, and, and what I, what I ultimately argue, and that's the notion of the counter-revolution, is that what's so remarkable about it today, of course, is that we're governing through a counter-insurgency logic, but there's no insurgency. Right? And that's the thing that's so remarkable. That's where you've reached the perfect pitch of this form of governing. Right? You've got the whole logic of counter-insurgency, which was developed, of course, with counterinsurgencies in mind, with insurgencies in mind. I mean, in Algeria there was the FLN. That was an armed insurgency. You know, in Vietnam or the Viet Cong, right? I mean, these these models of governing were developed with a particular idea that there was an insurgency, but now we've reached the point where we've perfected the mode of governing so well we don't even need really an insurgency anymore. And we don't have one, I argue. I don't think we have one in this country. We have, we do have acts of, of violence, more acts of violence that are unrelated to, uh, to, to anything that one could refer to as, a, as, a, as an insurgency. Right? Um, but we have a few acts of violence, and sometimes they claim uh, a particular ideology, and usually it's because it's a radical ideology, it's attractive because of its radicality. Um, but that's what we have. We have, you know, uh, unstable, a few unstable individuals who, who, who lean towards the most attractive ideology, and whether it's, like, you know, what they imagine as radical Islam or white supremacy. We've seen a lot of that. And the counter-revolution then is when we've achieved this point where you don't even need a real insurgency. You kind of create a fictitious insurgency that then nourishes this all the time. And that we can then project our imagination on uh, when we need to. So it was, it was written as a, as a, as a long durée. It's a story of a long durée, right? Of a technology that began in the 1960s uh, in the colonies. And that was at times used in this country even earlier. So the repression of the Black Panthers, for instance, um, the repression of the Move. These were there were counterinsurgencies that were used here before. But since 9/11, we've been on a track where we've been just kind of perfecting this to the point where at this point uh, we are what I say is governing through this model of counterinsurgency. Um, so um, now, the the there. Let me just quickly 
address two, two of the points that you raised. Um, three, let me read three if I can, uh, if I'm not going too long. First is the eroding of the boundaries, which I think is central to what's happening right here. Eroding of the boundaries, eroding of the boundaries between the, the legal and the illegal, for instance, or between the state of exception and the, and the rule of law. Because I think what we're seeing today is that all of these different interventions are being rendered legal. Right? So that there is no longer a distinction between this fictitious state of exception, which is outside of the rule of law, and what we're doing. We don't, we don't, today we don't need to create a state of exception because through legalistic memos, and I mean, one example, one so upsetting example, of course, is you know the 41-page memo uh, written by uh, a former colleague of mine, David Barron, uh, law professor, justifying constitutionally uh, the drone strike of an American citizen abroad. It's rendered fully legal. It doesn't need to be a state of exception. Um, there isn't a due process problem. It's just a question of self-defense of the country defending itself against someone who is imminently going to harm it. And so it, it's, it's, so those boundaries no longer exist because we can do all of this in a perfectly legal way. So that is one of the, one of the most uh, uh, maybe uh, dangerous aspects of this mode of governing precisely because once you've gotten rid of those boundaries, you have gotten rid of the, the, the traditional liberal stops, right? Um, and once you've done that, it's very hard to figure out how to critique, I mean, what you can say. I mean, how do you, once you've gotten rid of those boundaries, it's hard to say, you've overstepped a boundary. <laughs> you know, there are no boundaries, right? Um, so that's one of the most uh, dangerous aspects of it. Um, very quickly, did he, did he, let, me, um, let me very quickly get to the last point and then maybe open it up to both of you. Um, the, there is, I, do, I do end up in a place with a certain agnosticism about the resistance. And so you're entirely right that what I value most is the courage of resistance and the resistance itself. And I thought a lot. I thought a lot about that, and, and, and we're actually spending the whole year. And, and you've been, you've both been part of this, and many of you in the room have been part of this. With the seminar uprising 13 is to kind of theorize resistance. And um, Uday was on a fantastic panel uh, regarding Gandhi and Satyagraha, which is nonviolent action that we held here, actually, at Maison Française. And, and Sheila was on a fantastic panel that we had about Martin Luther King and Hannah Arendt that we held at Riverside Church. We are trying to figure out these different forms of resistance. But to me, at, at, at least at this point, and of course, you know, everything for me is a work in progress, but in this book, I am more concerned about individuals having the courage to resist along whatever line it is that they can find the courage to resist than I am in proposing a particular framework or ideology or, or, or coherent 
way of thinking about the resistance and some and some vision of the future. Um, in part because, uh, and in part here, I, I go back to King actually uh, in his um, in his speech against the Vietnam War in 1967 at Riverside Church, where he says famously, right, uh, everybody is going to protest in their own way, he says, or, or whatever, however they feel that they can uh, protest, but everybody should protest, right? And, and, and in part, you know, where I end this book with, with Occam, which takes us back to the uh, 14th century of an individual who himself was resisting very courageous uh, forms of uh, forms of, of warfare that were inquisitorial. Um, Why well, I end there, and with others, uh, and with some groups too, but with others, is that I, I think it's it's extremely it's it's extremely intimidating today. Um, these uh, these modes of counter insurgency governmentality they're extremely intimidating, and they do require a great courage on individuals' parts to stand up and to try and resist them. And, and, uh, and I don't have uh, so much a, an emphasis on, 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 on the vision that people should have in the resistance, but I am, I do believe that we need to nourish, we need to nourish the courage to stand up against these forms of um, these forms of, of uh, these 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 forms of I don't think I'm saying it too exaggeratingly these forms of terrorism right? because the use of torture is a form of terrorism that classifies us that 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 makes us that quiets us in indefinite detention and and. Uh, and kind of a, a, a Muslim ban, right? All of these things, I think, are intimidating, and, and, and it's really hard to have the courage to resist them. And that's what I'm, more than anything, I'm asking for. Thanks so much for listening to today's podcast, celebrating Bernard Harcourt's The Counter-Revolution, How Our Government Went to War Against Its Own Citizens. I hope you'll join us next time when we discuss Eric Gray's The Art of Love Poetry. From Columbia University's Society of Fellows and Heyman Center for the Humanities, I'm Ann Levitsky.